0: Well, um, let's open up to Ezra 6 uh, for a minute. We are going to uh, finish up Zechariah tonight, but I want to remind us of why we're looking at Zechariah, why we looked at Haggai. We took five lessons to do that, and tonight will be the last one, but um, they're very much connected to these uh, chapters in Ezra. So, you can look at that. And then um, we'll go ahead and let's just pray now and we'll um, ask God's blessing on the time and we'll jump in. So, Father, we just uh, come before you in humility and uh, we thank you for Jesus and his righteousness that we have even right now. We thank you for your word. It is truth. We thank you for both the Old and New Testaments. We thank you for the many things that we see and learn and grow in as we read the Old Testament, especially how it points us to Jesus and the overall plan of the gospel. And so, we pray even as we look at uh, Zechariah tonight, some of these prophecies that are going to happen in the future, that you would build our faith and expectation in what you're going to do with uh, those people and all the nations. And so we ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, so um, we've looked at Haggai for two weeks, and we looked at Zechariah for now. This will be the third week, and this will be it. But why did we take the time to look at Haggai and Zechariah? Right, in what way is it connected? These two prophets particularly. Right, exactly. So that it, there's that connection there that makes sense. These are the two prophets that are simultaneously running in this time period of Ezra. And it specifically began, remember, when they had experienced the opposition that we looked at in chapter f- uh, 4. And then um, they ceased the work. Between four and five, chapters four and five, there's about 16 years of time in which nothing was happening, except the people that lived there had started just work, worrying about their own lives and their own livelihoods and their homes, and they had forgotten the whole purpose, really, of why they arrived there. So God sent Haggai and Zechariah uh, to get them going again. That's in chapter five, verse one. So the prophets are sent to the Jews who were there to get them going again. But the reason I had you look at Ezra 6 before we look back at Zechariah is because of what he says in verse uh, 14, And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. Uh, they finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. This house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. So it was through, largely, it's interesting, isn't it, in chapter 6, verse 14, how the Lord makes sure we know that there was a direct connection between their finishing the temple and the the prophesying work of Haggai and Zechariah. It wasn't as though it just was they finished the t- building the temple, but they finished building the temple in part through this prophesying work of these two key prophets at this time. And I think that is very significant when we think about the idea of the power of the Word of God, uh, both uh, written and read and spoken to the people of God. And we have a, a similar parallel to this, I think we talked about this a couple weeks ago, in Ephesians 4 when the, we're, you know, we're talk to, we talk about the body of Christ and how Jesus Himself gives gifts to the church of gifted teachers. That, uh, that are sent, or prophets, or apostles, or whatever, they're sent to the church, and it's through the God has chosen this means of uh, public proclamation of His Word to encourage His people. I think that's important to see. It's the whole purpose of Zechariah and Haggai was a, largely a, a ministry of encouraging, prophesying to the people of God to get them going. So we, we need to keep that in mind as we're thinking through Zechariah for this last week and why God did what He did and how God does what He does. One of the things we're going to look at next Sunday morning in the context of thinking through our series on the church, and as we bring that to a conclusion, we're just going to make the observation that God's ordained means of beginning the church... And then carrying the church through and spreading the church has been through this act of preaching, public proclamation of the gospel. It has been a very, and the Word of God, a public proclamation of the Word of God. It's been a means by which God uses uh, to build His congregation. The first thing that happened next Acts 2 uh, that was responded to by those 3,000 souls we read about this morning that were added to the church was the act of preaching by Peter. He stood up, he lifts up his voice, he preaches to the people, and the Lord works in it in such a way that he brings them to faith. And then we're going to see how that continues through the life of the church, this uh, very simple act of just public proclamation. So this is how we can envision what Haggai and Zechariah are doing. It's this public proclamation of the Word of God to these people in an effort to encourage them. And then in chapter 6, they finish the temple, and we'll look at that particularly next week as we finish up chapter 6 next week, and, uh, and we'll, we'll look at that. But it's through the prophesying of these two men. Now, if you look at uh, Zechariah once again... And last week, I just want to, pick, with that in mind, I want to pick up on something that we looked at last week, Zechariah four. This vision of a golden lampstand. Do you remember this, the golden menorah? Um, and this menorah had seven lamps on it, and they had these seven lips. They're called here, but really just these channels uh, on top of it. And there was a bowl in the center of it that held the oil. And then you'll remember what was on one side and the other of of this. Uh, The olive trees, right? And they have like these channels going right in the bowl. They're constantly supplying the bowl with the oil that the lamps needed on this menorah to keep burning. And what was that all about? Well, um, he says uh, in chapter 4 of Zechariah, Verse 6, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, it was a picture of the Spirit of God continually being uh, channeled to these people that empowers them, right, to finish the temple and do what they're supposed to do. So when they're done with it, they know this was from God's Spirit empowering them and and strengthening them. And the reason I I began with this again this week is because I don't think I talked about it last week, but it's those two olive trees. Those two olive trees that appear in verse 3. There are two olive trees by it and on the right of the bowl and the other on the left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, "'What are these, my Lord?' Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. And then he gives just the explanation. He doesn't actually answer the question. So commentators, of course, do what commentators do best. They speculate on these things. And the, the most common interpretation of these two olive trees, now remember, they're the ones supplying the oil, which pictures the Holy Spirit, that's filling the bowl and keeping the people doing what they're supposed to be doing. The most common interpretation is that it is Zerubbabel and uh, Joshua. So you have the leader, the civic leader, the governor, at that time Zerubbabel. You got Joshua, the high priest, and somehow they're the olive trees. But I think, and uh, I found this interpretation in a a set of... uh, newer commentaries that I have. But this person speculated these are Haggai and Zechariah. And I thought, that makes a lot of sense to me. Because they are the ones supplying, right, the fresh spirit, the the source of that that's keeping the people going. And uh, from the Lord, of course, but they're supplying that oil into... um, this menorah to keep it going. Anyway, it doesn't matter uh, necessarily where we land on that, but I thought that was an intriguing interpretation. It ties in with what we see in chapter 6, that they finish building the temple, right, based on the, on the Lord's work and largely chapter 6, verse 14 of, of Ezra tells us it's through largely the preaching of the Word. It's showing the effectiveness of the Word of God to minister to these people. So as we're looking at in Zechariah tonight, as we're looking at these promises that God has for these people, that their work is not in vain, that God is fulfilling His kingdom promises and that great things are going to happen in the very place where they're working right now in um, Israel and specifically in Jerusalem, Uh, we're to be keeping in mind that God is using it in that real time. Remember, these were in real time. So, these were real people that were really building the temple, and they're getting these messages from the Lord, and it's supplying them with the strength and, uh, that they need from the Lord Himself, from the Spirit of God, in order to keep doing what they're supposed to be doing, okay? That's the picture that we're supposed to have in our minds as we're thinking about what's going on with that. Now, let's, um, we're going to just, what we're going to do is I have four passages I think it's four. Well, I won't go through and count, but it's roughly four. Passages spread out throughout Zechariah, beginning in chapter 2, that are prophecies about a future time that their work is going to be used to establish, okay, but it's going to be at a future time. Last time, two weeks ago, we kind of did a little outline on the board and if we're, if we're keeping a big picture in mind and we think about, the you know, the fact that we're in the church age now and then there's going to come this period of time called the Great Tribulation, seven years of time. And then at the following of that seven years, Christ returns and establishes that His reign on earth over all the nations. And there is a period of time of, what, a thousand years, right? Okay, so a thousand years of time. And then at the end of that, then... Paul tells us that he turns the kingdom over to his Father and that God is all in all. He talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15, and we go into the eternal kingdom of God. But we said last time, two weeks ago, that we believe that these prophecies that Zechariah is uh, putting forth to these people are probably going to find their fulfillment in that thousand years. And I'll show you some reasons why we want to say that and not the eternal state and some reasons maybe that we'll read some of these and say, well, that's never happened yet, so we still know its future, okay? But we're probably just putting it into that context for us as we begin. So when we think about being premillennialists, which means we believe Jesus is going to return before the millennium, the thousand years, and He's going to reign on this earth from Jerusalem. Part of the reason we believe that is because of what you read in Zechariah. But there is this, remember the whole time as we're reading this, that this is being prophesied to those people in very real time, giving them very real kingdom hopes about their work not being in vain and that God is going to bring this in. They might have thought in their mind, as we look at some of these, that this was going to come much quicker than they believed. Or that they, you know, that they, they, they thought it was going to be much quicker than it actually was. Okay, but I think this is where we're headed. Now, so um, in these promises and prophecies concerning Israel and the land, uh, you'll notice a few features uh, before we look at them in particular. Just notice these things as we go through them. They're largely centered in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a very unique and special city in God's plan for His kingdom, the kingdom of uh, the Messiah, We'll also see that that particular land in Israel and uh, for Israel, but also the nations have purpose for God. That we'll see how God unfolds this. Um, Some of these prophecies, we'll talk about the promise of the future Davidic king. Remember, at this time when you're reading Ezra and Nehemiah, they already have the expectation of the coming king. Okay, they already have an expectation through the prophets of a coming king, the Davidic king, who was going to uh, restore them and and establish the kingdom. And then, as I mentioned earlier, most of the prophecies pictured are are a time in the the distant future. More distant than they could have imagined probably at that time because we still haven't hit it yet and we're two and a half millennia past where they were. Okay? Uh, um, So... Alright, now, let's look at chapter 2, and I'm not going to, I cannot go through these in an in exhaustive detail, but I'll just read these passages, a handful of verses here and there, and then I just want to make some observations on them, okay, just kind of in general. So, remember, those things that we just said, keep those in mind, and then let's let's look at these. So, in, in chapter 2, beginning of verse 1, um, he says, I lifted up my eyes and saw... And behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him, and said to him, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. So, just a little key here. Sometimes when you're reading through prophetic literature, if it's part of your daily Bible reading program, sometimes the prophet will see something that's rather strange. Um, He even thought it was a little strange, like... what where are you going? You know, he's asking, like, what is going on with this as he's measuring Jerusalem and stuff. But always try to look at what kind of the main point of whatever the person is seeing or experiencing or being told them is. And, um, and that will help you kind of, I think, keep things in a big picture perspective. But clearly what we're seeing here is a future promise that would have been encouraging to the people of Ezra's time as they're rebuilding the temple in a very uninhabited city, a city post-destruction, and uh, not a thriving city to any degree. But this picture of what Jerusalem will be, did you notice that? What it's going to be, it's going to be inhabited, right, as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. You're seeing prosperity of people, prosperity of livestock in this place. You see that it's going to be a place without walls, and in verse 5, I will be to her, that is Jerusalem, a wall of fire all around her. Why did they use wall, put walls around cities? Protection, right? Uh, and to keep out the bad guys. We used to have borders around our nation to do the same thing. We... Uh, didn't think that's a good idea, I guess anymore, but um, at any rate, there's a recognition that you've protect your city. In this case, Jerusalem will be such where it is in no need of those kinds of walls. First of all, the walls couldn't contain all the people, just a picture of prosperity and, and the livestock. But also, verse five, "I will be to her a wall of fire all around. They will not need this protection because I will be protecting her, declares the Lord. I would say that if you know the history of Jerusalem, even from that point on forward, there's never been a time like that. There's never been a time since that time on where Jerusalem has not been uh, at times a complete war zone, um, not a place in which It is picturing what we're picturing here. Again, it's going to be a time of peace, but we'll get more into that in a minute. uh, Skip down in chapter 2 to verse 10 through 12. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. The Lord is going to come to Jerusalem and going to dwell in her midst. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land and will again choose Jerusalem. All right, so here we have another future prophecy. We know that because he uses terminology like in that day. Okay, so something that had not happened or was not happening, but something that they could look forward to in the future. and the key promise here is that of the Lord Himself dwelling in her midst. It's quite a powerful, quite powerful imagery here is what he's saying. Uh, and you shall know, and it's interesting how he says it. He says, uh, I will come uh, and dwell in your midst. Wait a uh, and verse, okay, and then he says in verse 11, and I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. This is interesting, isn't it? So the Lord is coming to dwell in their midst, and the Lord is sending. It seems both and already you should be picking up on Jesus, right? The Lord Himself. This is an example of one of those things that one of those prophecies that found a pre-fulfillment or a or however you want to term. It. I don't really care how you term it, but a, a pre fulfillment or a partial fulfillment or a beginning of fulfillment in the arrival of Christ the early writers recognize this John did in John 1 14. he said the word became flesh and what did he do he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth the Lord had sent his uh, son who did dwell among them in a glory, okay, in a glory. So when we, when we read some of these, we can see how they begin to find some fulfillment in Christ in His first coming, right? But there's more to come, in other words. Uh, they haven't found fulfillment yet, just a beginning of fulfillment. We see that as Christ comes. Um, he talks about the nations, the many nations, doesn't he? he? Says, verse eleven: Many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day. Well, there is a sense in which that is happening in the in the church age, isn't there? There's a sense in which throughout the church age, the whole concept is the nations joining themselves to the Lord. That's what we've been studying on Sunday mornings in the doctrine of the church. This mystery that Jew and Gentile would now be brought into one new, per, one new man, one new humanity, right? And so they are joining themselves to the Lord. Um, and so we're finding some uh, fulfillment in that. Colossians 1.13 says that he has del- God has delivered us from the domain and darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So, we live in this time, but we are still awaiting the full fulfillment of these future kingdom promises because the time is coming, as we'll see in some of these, where Christ is going to come again to Jerusalem and will be present there. And the nations, because it seems like Zechariah keeps building on these until it gets in the end. By the end, Christ is dwelling in Jerusalem and the nations are flooding to it to uh, hear and learn from the Messiah. Okay? All right. That's chapter 2. Next one is chapter 8. Any questions or comments on chapter 2? Okay. Chapter 8, let's look at the first eight verses. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. "'Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and would dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, "'Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with his staff in hand because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets.'" Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. So notice a few things about this Prophecy designed to encourage the people of Israel as they are rebuilding that temple there in Jerusalem. First of all, the Lord's great jealousy over them um, and uh, His great concern for them and wrath against the nations who are against them. We didn't read this back in chapter 2, but there was a warning to those living in Babylon to get out because the Lord was going to discipline them even though he used them to discipline his own people. So uh, there's great jealousy over his people. And I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, it will again be called the faithful city, right? The mountain of the Lord of hosts, a holy mountain. I do not think that we can say that we've had a full fulfillment of that. I think that uh, if we are to remain consistent in having any kind of interpretation of these prophecies that is literal and grammatical and historical, we, we're still awaiting a time when he does that in a full way. But then if you look in verse 4, he has these old men and old women shall again in the streets of Jerusalem and, and staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Again, it seems to be peace, but also the great age of people seems to be the idea that uh, these people are living a long time in health and prosperity, even though there's aging going on. So, notice this. This describes a time and season in Jerusalem that has not yet happened. This describes an ideal time of peace in Jerusalem that has not historically happened and is uh, most certainly not presently happened. And second, this cannot describe the final aspect of the eternal kingdom because there are aged people, each with staff in hand and of great age. So, this is the, he's picturing now this idealistic time, but not a time of perfection yet. Did you notice that? There is still an aging process happening. Well, when you get into the final aspect of God's kingdom, that all goes away. But in this, this aspect... There's not. Even that, there's children being born, which we have every indication to believe that in the final fulfillment of all God's kingdom promises and plans in the final age, there's not going to be that. So, it's still picturing this time of prosperity coming. This is encouraging them. God's going to work. He's going to fulfill His promises for them as, as the Lord dwells among them. But it's not a time they're experiencing, and it's not a time we believe that has fully been completely brought about yet. According to these verses, the Jews returned to the promised land in a more complete way than what was happening or had happened, okay? All right, that's chapter 8. Now, chapter 9, look at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Again, what were these these prophecies designed to do for the people that were there? Encourage them, right? Rejoice in what I'm telling you. Rejoice in the work that God has given to you to do. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Here's that promised king coming. Your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coal, the foal of a donkey. Now, where in the New Testament is that very prophecy quoted? On Palm Sunday, right? We observe it, we talk about it every year. Read probably, Matthew 21 is one of the popular ones, where... uh, in Matthew 21, Jesus has his disciples go and prepare everything uh, for the Passover, right? Uh, and he says, go into the village in front of you. Immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. and He will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, etc. So, here is an example of a clear fulfillment in the life of Christ. He's that king. He's the promised king. He comes into Jerusalem in the exact way that the Scriptures prophesied about, Zach way that Zechariah prophesies about, which, should, which tells us, friends, when we think about prophecy, I realize that within prophecy there's a lot of images and there's a lot of things that are fuzzy, but we should have the general expectation that generally speaking, the prophecy will have literal fulfillment. I often question people who would say, well, you know, they'll take another prophecy and they'll say, well, this is fulfilled spiritually in such and such a way. And I'm like, then all of a sudden God has changed the plan of how He fulfills prophecy. In other words, I think we should just go into these with the general expectation that even if it sounds strange to us or we can't fi- figure out how that would work, we take a, a literal approach where the text allows us to do it because we see it very plainly here. And if this, this one was fulfilled literally in the time of Christ, why would we not expect the rest of these to be fulfilled? Like why do we also get to change the nature of how we fulfill prophecy? Does that make sense what I'm saying? Because there are many people that explain all of these things away about the future of Jerusalem, a literal Davidic king reigning from it, and and the restoration of Israel, even ethnic Jews that are saved and brought into this situation. And so, they'll they'll try to explain some of these in a very uh, succinct way of saying, well, they're all fulfilled in Christ. That's a big one now. He's the newer, truer, greater Israel, and they're all fulfilled in Him. Well, I agree with part of that. He is a truer and greater Israel, but all of these promises aren't can't be fulfilled in him unless God has changed the way in which he fulfills promise. And this is a perfect example of that. And then if you look at verse 10, so we're in chapter 9, Zechariah 9, verse 10. So here here you have one that was fulfilled, verse 9, on Palm Sunday. He says in verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he... The king shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from uh, sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. Okay, now, uh, two things to catch from this. First of all, here you have uh, chapters nine and t- or verses 9 and 10 back to back where you have um, a-, a prophecy that was fulfilled uh, from verse 9 in real time but another prophecy that might find pre-fulfillment a little bit but won't find full fulfillment until the end. And it, it, this is called, hold on one second, this is really interesting actually, so I'll share this with you, because the way prophecy uh, is broken up, oh, I don't have it on here, hold on one second. That's why I have my computer, boom. Scroll up, single fulfillment, double fulfillment, to fulfillment, prophetic foreshortening, prophetic foreshortening. Anybody ever heard of that term before, prophetic foreshortening? This is where you have two prophetic events right next to each other, And when you read them, you think it'll happen all at one time. But actually what happens is you get part of it initially. Christ rides into Jerusalem on the donkey. This was to fulfill. But the second part of that wasn't fully fulfilled or won't be fully fulfilled and still isn't until that, what I believe, the millennial kingdom into the future. Although they look like they're right next to each other, there's a period of time that people didn't catch the, the reason I'm bringing this up is because this was what was such a stumbling block to the Jews in Jesus' day about his ministry. See, they saw, all these, they saw all these things. They took this all very literally about what God was going to do in Jerusalem and with the Davidic king and the rule and reign of the nations. So when Jesus comes in and he doesn't do it initially, they had no, they had no way of processing that really. This was supposed to happen. Boom and then boom right? The king comes to Jerusalem, he establishes the throne, and his rule extends across all the globe, right? This is what is supposed to happen, and it doesn't. It's prophetic foreshortening. And the illustration that is given to explain this, and Coloradoans will probably understand this, is sometimes when you look at a mountain range, and let's say you have a peak of a mountain here, and then one right behind it, they almost look like they're right next to each other. But if you were to go summit at the first peak, and then you looked at the next one, what looked far away is like two right next to each other, you are, you're miles apart, right? There's that. You didn't see a space in between it, okay? And so this is an example of that kind of prophecy where there is a fulfillment, and it happened in a very literal sense, in which he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, but what happened next was a stumbling block to the Jews because of what they expected him to do, which was now reign and rule, and deliver them from all the uh, Roman uh, the Roman occupation, etc. Okay, um, but you'll notice in the future I'm going to cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem. There's going to be great peace. Again, it's just a, it's, it's what Isaiah says. I'm going to turn their uh, spears into pruning hooks, right? They're not even going to need weapons anymore. This is going to be a time of great peace for the people of God. That's not happened. They still need weapons right now. If they didn't have weapons and nuclear weapons, uh, there would be a real problem with them right now, with the nations that hate them. This has not been a time that has been uh, up until that time. But there is a sense in which Christ has and is speaking peace to the nations. Impartial. Does anybody know what I'm referring to there? What about in Ephesians 2 where it says he preached peace to those who were near and to those who were far off? This proclamation of peace Christ does through His church. Christ does through the proclaimers of the gospel. He offers peace to the nations. There is a sense in which His rule and reign is right now extending further and further from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So it's, there is fulfillment, there is kingdom fulfillment happening in our age, not in its fullness But as every person comes to faith in Christ, they bow their knee to King Jesus in their lives, their hearts are conquered by Him, right? The kingdom is expanding um, throughout the world. So there's a sense in that, but we don't end there. We still see the future reign of Christ in a literal fashion as He's in Jerusalem dwelling there in glory and ruling over the nations, okay? And, and he's going to keep building on this thing, on this theme. All right. Um, all right, let's look at the big one now. The last one we'll look at is uh, Zechariah 14. This is a powerful chapter, okay? And there, again, our purpose in this study was not to do an exhaustive study of Zechariah, but just to give you the idea of what's really encouraging these people. He talks about the coming day of the Lord, in those initial battles, or in the, 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 those initial verses. Um, he says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Notice who's gathering them, interestingly. When this happens, and I think this is picturing Revelation 19, I think this is picturing the end of the tribulation period, in which God has done that restoring work in the nation of Israel where they have looked upon the one that they have pierced. They're, they're thinking about this. There's mass revival among the Jewish people, but then there's mass persecution, and it seems like there's this great battle that's going against the nation uh, of Israel again, the surrounding of Jerusalem, much akin to what we see I think on a smaller scale, in A.D. 70. But that picture of what's going to happen, they're surrounding them. But this won't go very far. Half the city will uh, be taken and the house is plundered. The women raped. Half the city shall go into exile. That's why Jesus describes it as a, as, a, as a tribulation that the world has not seen to this point, right? Pretty sure I'm right here. But the rest of the people should not be cut off from the city, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when He fights on a day of battle. On that day, His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies between before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west uh, d- by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. I think, just as a note, just uh, you can make a note, we think about Revelation 19. And the picture of the Lord uh, Jesus returning in glory. And he, is, he has come to judge and make war. And his garments are splattered in blood. And uh, in chapter 19, and he talks about uh, uh, the armies of heaven come with him, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, following him on a white horse. Uh, from the, his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. This portion of Zechariah 14 seems to fit very neatly into here. Not all the details are in either one, but what happens then after he defeats all his enemies in chapter 20 of Revelation? He establishes a kingdom, right? He establishes a thousand-year reign. So, and so he's going on in this. Um, he, uh, then the Lord, my God, will come, all, and all the holy ones with him, verse uh, 5. Uh, then he talks about uh, some other things here, but we, uh, if we go down to verse um, 16. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king. Notice what he's saying. Everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall then go up year after year to worship the king. This is again a picture, a prophecy about that millennial reign. So Christ comes, the end of that tribulation period, he wipes out the enemies, he delivers his people. And He establishes His kingdom. And what will happen year after year, and this is where, too, you have non-glorified people in the kingdom. i have always wrestled with, how do we get non-glorified people in the kingdom? Well, this is the way. You have people who aren't glorified. These are the nations. These are people that will comprise the nations. The saints of the Lord Jesus will reign with Him This is part of reigning over these nations. And they are going to be made, you'll notice, to come up, keep the feast of booze. And if any of the families of the earth, this is back in Zechariah 14, verse 16, 17, if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. He will send on them drought. He's going to rule them with a rod of iron. Now many of them will be submissive to him. Uh, Satan will be bound at this time, so there will be idealistic times. But many of these people will will not be, some of them will not even be regenerate because at the end of the millennium, remember, we have to have a massive uprising. And those people have to be unregenerate people that go against Christ. And there's no battle there. He just vanquishes them. And then it's the eternal state. He says in chapter 14, Zechariah 14, verse 20, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. You picture such a day in which the nations are now in hostility against the Lord. Psalm 2, hostility. They're standing against Him. They're just against the Lord and against His anointed. And this day will be a grand day in which our King Jesus is ruling and reigning and the nations are submissive to Him and they're coming to Him. They're seeking His favor. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall come take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. There is going to be a a way in which I think the, the ethnic Israel will have a prominent role in the kingdom, though we all have an inheritance in the kingdom. Uh, They have this role in which they are doing as God always intended them to do to the nations, be light and instructors. Remember, it was Israel that was given the privileges of God's Word and law and promises. They were designed to be Uh, They were supposed to be a people who were a light to the nations, that the nations would come and inquire of who their Lord was. Who is this Yahweh? Tell us about Him. Teach us them. Well, God, uh, that was God's uh, desire for Israel, but it never came to fruition, but it will. Um, as this comes to fruition in that millennial time. So, much we don't know about the millennial kingdom, many questions we have in our minds, but there are some things here that we can see in Zechariah that would encourage those people and encourage us about this time coming when we're going to live in this world with a righteous king reigning. Doesn't it sound nice? It sounds great to have righteousness reigning. And um, you just look at the I mean, just we're we're speaking. I realize from just an American perspective, but just look at the ridiculousness of our national leadership, even in our president. How many videos do you see online? It's just a laugh. It's almost a laughing stock. I can't see that as anything other than God's giving this people over to what they want, and it wasn't Him. Okay, but there's coming a day when. Our leader's coming and nobody's going to laugh at him. Christ is going to reign. He's going to have his way. People are going to... Humanity is going to be as it's supposed to be and we as glorified people... See, the reason we look forward to this, friends, is because we will be glorified. We are reigning with Christ when this happens. We are all part of this. It's just going to be an amazing uh, period of time for us and then... The eternal kingdom will come. And uh, the millennial kingdom would be great, wonderful, beautiful. But the eternal kingdom will be f- even more glorious with the new heaven and new earth. That's what we have waiting for. So, okay. That's good. That's Zechariah. Any thoughts or questions or anything on what we've talked about? Yeah, Vivi. Um I am sorry. A trader, never mind. Okay. <laughs> I yeah, I didn't even know if I could answer it, but I was gonna give it a whirl, so just do what I was taught. Act like you know what you're talking about and nobody'll know the difference, right? No, I'm kidding. Unless they're smart, yes. Yeah, Adam. Mm. Yeah, yep. <clears throat> I agree. Yes. Yes, yep. Yeah, well, good. All right, well, let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and goodness, and just as your word encouraged um. The people of Israel in that time period, uh, we pray that you continue to be faithful to supply us with your word in our hearts and minds as we seek to serve you now. Uh, We tend to be like them. We can get distracted and discouraged. And we need to know that what we're doing, what we're building matters for eternity And that it's wonderful and that there's good promises. So please help us, even this week, to keep that in perspective. And I pray that you uh, encourage each one here and protect them this week. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.